Hello, I'm Catherine Carr, producer of Talking Politics. This is the first episode in our new series of the History of Ideas, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. In it, David explores the thinking behind some of the most important books in the history of political thought. Today, he looks at Jean-Jacques Rousseau's arguments in his second discourse about the origins of inequality. If human beings were once at peace with one another, how did we end up with so much misery and so much strife? When we think about some of the deepest puzzles of politics, we often start with a what question. So for instance, we could start by asking, what is politics? Or the question that I started the last series of History of Ideas with, Thomas Hobbes's question, what is the state? And then the extension of that question with Hobbes, what is peace? What counts as peace? What counts as order or security? What makes us safe? But those aren't the only what questions by any means. And later in this series, I'm going to talk about a 20th century political philosopher, John Rawls, who said explicitly that the starting point for thinking philosophically about politics, the first question, as he said, is what is justice? Or his extension of that question, what is fairness? What counts as a fair society? And sometimes Rawls's question and Hobbes's questions are set against each other. So sometimes it's presented as a sort of choice. Either you're a what is justice kind of philosopher, or you're a what is peace or what is order kind of philosopher. But there are very different kinds of fundamental questions that we could ask about politics. And in this series of History of Ideas, I want to start with and focus on these other kinds of questions. And I'd characterize them as not the what questions, but the why questions. Not what is politics, but why the hell do we have this as politics? Why is this our politics? Or sometimes even more acutely than why, they're how questions. How did we end up here? How did we end up ruling ourselves or being ruled like this by these people and often by implication? How did we end up with these idiots in charge? That's the question. And sometimes it's also a where question too. Where did we go wrong? If this is where we ended up, where the hell did we get it wrong? Where did we get it wrong? How did we get it wrong? Why is it so wrong? I think, I'm pretty sure, we all recognize that sometimes that feels like the fundamental question of politics. And it kind of has felt like the fundamental question of politics quite a lot in recent years. But I'm going to start this series with someone who posed that question in a kind of definitive form in the middle of the 18th century. So in a book that was published in 1755 by the Swiss, not French, he's often thought of as French, but he was born in Geneva, the Swiss philosopher, thinker, writer, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And the book is sometimes called The Second Discourse, Rousseau's Second Discourse, or The Discourse on Inequality. And in that book, this is how he poses the why or the how question. And I'm just going to quote this briefly. This is what Rousseau says. How did we end up in a world where a child should govern an old man, an imbecile, an idiot, should lead a wise man, and a handful of people should gorge themselves with superfluities while the hungry multitude goes in want of necessities? 
And it's that last bit that really speaks to people across the ages, I think, although what it is to be led by an idiot speaks to people too. But how the hell did we end up in a world where the rich stuff their faces and the poor lack the basic necessities? That, in the second discourse, is Rousseau's question. Why, not what? So one of the interesting things about that question in that book is it's not where Rousseau starts. So what I have just read to you are the very last lines of the book. It ends with that puzzle. It doesn't actually end there if you read it, and it is definitely worth reading. The book has this whole series of slightly crazy footnotes as well, in which all the stuff that Rousseau couldn't stuff into the main argument, he has in these disquisitions and asides about all sorts of things, vegetarianism, the sex life of animals, some pretty weird anthropology too. It's worth reading, but the book ends, the argument ends with that puzzle. And the reason it comes at the end is that the why question does kind of start at the end. If the why or the how question is, how did we end up here? You start where we are and you kind of have to work back, particularly if you want to know where did we go wrong. You have to retrace your steps or we have to retrace our steps as a society, or even as Rousseau does in this book, as a species. So that's the question at the end. Actually, the question at the beginning of Rousseau's second discourse is a different question, because it was written in response to an essay competition of the kind they used to have in 18th century France, where the academy poses a question and people are invited to answer it. And the question for this competition, and again, I'll read it out, it's a different kind of question. So this was the question that Rousseau was ostensibly answering, and it starts with a what. What is the origin of inequality among people, and is it authorised by natural law? The second half of that question is a yes-no question, which is always a bit dangerous for an essay prize because someone could just say no. And indeed, Rousseau did say no, but he went on at some length as to why the answer was no. It's called Rousseau's second discourse because five years earlier, the first discourse was an answer to another essay competition question. This is a really pompous question that Rousseau answered, and that answer was published in 1750. So first time round, the question for the prize was, has the restoration of the sciences and the arts contributed to the purification of morals? So that just is a yes or no question. And Rousseau's answer was emphatically no. That question was basically saying, has art and science made us better off, better, more decent, more honourable people, leading better and purer lives? And Rousseau said, no, 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 no. The first discourse is more important in Rousseau's story, certainly in his life story, than the second discourse for a couple of reasons. First of all, he said explicitly in his own account of his life, that when he was thinking about that question and thinking about possibly entering the competition, the answer came to him as a kind of revelation. So there was a sort of conventional wisdom, the wisdom of enlightenment progress, that the arts and the sciences, even if they don't quite lead to the purification of morals, certainly lead to the betterment of the human condition. But when Rousseau really thought about it and he was walking along the road and thinking, he suddenly came to the conclusion that the answer is obviously no, that actually as he concluded, human beings were once much better off. Indeed, he says they were once good. And what has happened to morals, among other things, is that what we call civilization has corrupted them and us. We are worse off because of what is conventionally called progress. And once he'd come to that conclusion that civilization was a kind of trap, he never budged from it. 
he varied it and he varied the emphasis of it in his many writings. But it was a genuine life-changing revelation for him, at least in his version of his own life. The other reason why it matters is he won the prize, somewhat surprisingly, given the pomposity of the question and the clarity of Rousseau's answer, basically telling them it was nonsense. But he won. Sometimes those prize juries like to be told that they've asked the wrong question. And in winning the prize, Rousseau's life was also changed because it, it made him famous. It didn't make him as famous as he was to become. He was to become, in a sense, given the shape of the world back then, world famous, one of the most famous people in Europe a genuine international celebrity. But winning the prize set him on the road to that and it introduced him to French Enlightenment society, particularly in Paris. He met the great men and indeed women of the day. It changed his life. But the second discourse outside of Rousseau's life story is the more important book, partly because it's just a better book. It's a much more interesting book. In a way, the first essay question that Rousseau had to answer, it was a bit easy to be shocking because he was being invited to attack the arts and the sciences. And even artists and scientists sometimes wonder whether they've got a slightly inflated impression of themselves, or more often whether their fellow artists and scientists are a bit over keen on their own importance. But in the second discourse, the line of attack is much broader, because he's talking about everyone. The second discourse is an argument about humanity, about what it is to be human. And that includes the non-artists and the non-scientists as well. It includes everyone. It's an incredibly wide-ranging, indeed sweeping book. It was clearly too sweeping for the prize jury because he didn't win the prize second time round. It's also true that Rousseau was a pretty annoying person and it may be by making himself famous, he allowed people to decide they didn't much like him. Anyway, it is nonetheless the better book. It's the more interesting book. It's a completely remarkable book. It's more widely read now than the first discourse, but it's not the book on which Rousseau's almost eternal fame, fame that has lasted to this day, rests. There are other later things that he wrote for which he is still better known. His writing on education in Emile, he more or less invented the genre of the tell-all, self-exposing autobiography in his book, The Confessions, which is still a pretty painful and awkward read. And his great work of political philosophy, The Social Contract, But I've decided not to talk about the social contract here, to talk about the second discourse, partly because I just prefer the second discourse. I think it's a more interesting book. The social contract is also an interesting book, but it's difficult in ways I'll come on to. And actually, it has a narrower remit, I think. The second discourse contains some of the other stuff in it too. It has things about education. It certainly has things about looking into yourself and trying to work out who you really are. It's partly an account of what it is for human beings to know themselves, self-knowledge, and indeed self-revelation. It's certainly about politics too. And it's also a book about social psychology in a way. If you had to characterize it in more 21st century terms, that why or how question for Rousseau is a question about social self-harm. He thought in the middle of the 18th century, he was living in a society, particularly by the time he'd moved to France, that was harming itself doing itself extraordinary damage, that the human beings who made up this society were trapped in patterns of behavior that were clearly bad for them. How did they get there? And why? Why are they doing that? So what's his answer in the second discourse? 
Well, one thing to say about it is that for Rousseau isn't really a choice as such in the sense that he's not tried to identify the moment when we embrace this way of life, when we picked it out of a range of options. And there isn't a kind of revelatory moment for human beings comparable to his one, thinking about the first question, where human societies or human beings in societies decided that this was the way they were going to go. It's not a fork in the road story as such. It's much more gradual than that. If anything, it's an accident rather than a choice, or rather it's a series of unfortunate events. It's missteps along the way, and it's a long story, and Rousseau treats it as a story of many thousands of generations of human experience. It's a long story, and when I was reading it for this talk, it brought to mind a line from a very different writer, very different writer, Ernest Hemingway, in his novel, The Sun Also Rises. So in that novel, one character asks another, famously, how did you go bankrupt? And gets the reply, two ways, gradually, then suddenly. And Rousseau's story of how humanity went morally bankrupt in the second discourse is that, gradually, then suddenly, in the sense that Hemingway is trying to convey about bankruptcy. A lot of the story is small, early steps that aren't even conscious at the time. The little things that we do, the little corners that we cut, the decisions that we make that don't seem important, that us may be slightly self-indulgent or haven't properly been thought through, but aren't in their own terms and in real time of any great consequence. But they build up, they accumulate little debts or little deceptions. And then the moment comes when there is a choice when things have to be done, when the resources look too spare. And then we discover that we don't actually have options. That When the bankruptcy comes suddenly, it's because it's too late. And then we ask ourselves, how did we get here? How did we get to the point where we no longer have a choice, that we lack the resources to resist what's coming? And we realize that the story goes back to the beginning again, and it started with the early missteps. That's the kind of story that Rousseau tells about all of us and for all of us, in the second discourse. So where does he think it actually begins? So it begins in a version of what, also for Hobbes, we have come to call state of nature theory, that is an argument about what it is to be human in a pre-social setting. So Rousseau also flirting with 18th century anthropology and using language that many of us now find uncomfortable. He's also talking about what he calls primitive societies, but primitive here really means first, what comes first, the thing at the beginning. Primitive, pre-social, certainly in his terms, pre-civilized. And you have to remember when he says pre-civilized, he does not think civilization is a good thing. So at least it doesn't come with that kind of sneering connotation. What was it like to be a natural human being? And Rousseau says explicitly that it was a time of peace, that we were able peacefully and successfully to coexist. In that revelation, he thought it meant that we were in some sense good, naturally good, but certainly he thought we were not naturally inclined to harm each other. It is partly an argument about equality and inequality. That was the question he was posed by the prize committee. What is the origin of inequality among people? And he doesn't say that the natural condition of human beings is inherently equal. We weren't once all the same. We're different. Some of us are stronger. Some of us are weaker. Some of us are healthier. And some of us are much less healthy. And in natural societies, if you get sick, you will probably die. So it really matters. But there is a kind of deeper equality there for Rousseau. 
which is we are relatively speaking if we are healthy. And if we're not healthy, there's not a lot we can do about it pre-medicine. But if we are healthy, we are relatively speaking self-sufficient. The reason we can coexist is we are not codependent, he thought. We could do our own thing. And he says explicitly of the possibility of conflict in the state of nature, that if we do get into conflict with other human beings, we have an option, which is to walk away. He actually says, you just disappear into the woods and you'll be fine. He's thinking of forager or hunter-gatherer societies. If you are a forager, just go and forage somewhere else if you don't like the people who are foraging around you. There is a means of escape. But the fact it's an argument for natural peace stands in obvious contrast, and Rousseau makes this point absolutely explicitly, that part of what he is arguing against is the vision of Thomas Hobbes. So Hobbes, as I talked about in the last series, is the philosopher who said that the state of nature is a state of war. The war of all against all, life is nasty, brutish and short. We cannot help but fight each other. And Rousseau says not only can we help it, we don't. We have no need to fight each other. And so that contrast is absolutely explicit. And one way to frame it is in that language of equality and inequality. Because if what equalizes us for Rousseau in the state of nature is that anyone can simply walk away, what equalizes us for Hobbes in the state of nature is that anyone can attack anyone else. And one way to think about this is actually in the language of what happens when we're asleep. So for Hobbes in the state of nature, when you are asleep, you don't know whether someone's going to attack you. And for Rousseau, in the state of nature, if you don't like someone, just wait for that person to go to sleep and then disappear. Don't attack them. You can just go. Sleep is an escape. For Rousseau, the other person's sleep. Our sleep, for Hobbes, is our natural vulnerability. So that contrast is real and it's stark, but it does sometimes get really overblown the Hobbes versus Rousseau contrast. So let me just give one example of a place where I think it's overblown. So it's a book that was published last year by Rutger Bregman called Humankind, an argument about whether we are naturally conflictual or cooperative species. Are humans prone to fight or are they prone to be friends? And Bregman wants to say that in the modern world, we've bought Hobbes's propaganda and we think that we need states because otherwise we'll be at each other's throats. And it's nonsense, he says. Naturally, we cooperate and actually states make us more likely to fight. And he says, there's a choice in modern thought. You're either on the side of Hobbes or you go with Rousseau. Hobbes is the philosopher of human beings as nasty. Rousseau is the philosopher of human beings as nice. For Hobbes, we fight. For Rousseau, we are naturally friends. Rousseau is, on this account, explicitly the friendly philosopher. That's too much. That is pushing it too far. That is too schematic. Apart from anything else, it's kind of odd to think that Rousseau is the philosopher of friendship, given that his argument in the Second Discourse is quite explicitly about solitariness and self-sufficiency. The fact we can be at peace in nature because we don't depend on other people, because we can walk away. We are, among other things, indifferent to other human beings. That's what allows for peace, relatively indifferent. That is, we don't much care what they think of us. We don't need much to care what we think of them. We do a bit, and I'll come on to that. But on the whole, we can just think about ourselves. In some ways, Hobbes is the philosopher of futile attempts at friendship. Hobbes' state of nature is where people want to be friends, but they can't because they can't trust each other. Rousseau isn't even sure they want to be. 
So it's not that. I would put the contrast differently. The fundamental difference between Rousseau and Hobbes's account of the state of nature is that Rousseau thinks in the state of nature we are not self-conscious in the sense that we don't really compare ourselves to other human beings. We are not naturally a comparative species. So we do make comparisons. So we will compare ourselves, he says, in the state of nature to wild beasts, and we will know that they are stronger than us. So if you meet a lion or a tiger, it's not just that you have the option to run away. You really should. But that doesn't trigger in us feelings of inadequacy or make us worry about, broadly speaking, are we better or worse than the lion? It's a kind of fact of the world, and indeed it's a fate that will befall some people, but it doesn't affect our pride. Whereas for Hobbes, pride is hardwired there from the beginning. Hobbes is, among other things, the philosopher of vainglory, of vanity, of human preening, of our desire to look better than other people, to be thought well of. He thinks that's part of what makes us human. And Rousseau, to a large extent, doesn't. What Rousseau does have in common with Hobbes is he thinks that naturally we have a kind of selfishness, which he calls amour de soi, love of self. But it really means a desire to preserve ourselves. It's that Hobbesian notion that we are hardwired for self-preservation. In the state of nature, all human beings, indeed all animals, are going to try to avoid death. It's only natural. But to call that selfishness is going a bit far. It is just part of what it means to be alive. For Rousseau, that kind of drive for self-preservation in the state of nature goes with another quality, which is very different, and which he calls, as we might call it, pity. That is the ability to pity other human beings. So the way in which we do connect with other human beings is we do not like to see them suffer. And Rousseau thinks this is just a fact of human makeup true then, true now, true in his day, true in our day, he would say, just look at us, look into ourselves. When we see another human being suffering, if you watch the news and you see a child starving in some other part of the world, unless you are inhuman, unless you are some kind of psychopath, you will be moved by it. You may well cry. We are programmed to feel the suffering of others. We have in us the natural capacity for pity. Pity rather than pride. So Rousseau contrasts two different kinds of self-love, the kind of self-love that just drives us to seek to keep ourselves alive. We will protect ourselves if we need to by walking away. But then there is what he calls amor propre, which is much closer to what we mean by pride, a kind of prideful self-consciousness in which we value our own value by what other people think of us. We want to be thought well of. It's much, much closer to that Hobbesian notion of vanity and vainglory, much closer to that than self-preservation. That's the difference between Hobbes and Rousseau. For Hobbes, that vanity is there right at the beginning. For Rousseau, it's not. But again, it's not as simple as saying that the Rousseau story, the why that he wants to answer is how and why did we go from being a species capable of pity to being a civilized species? weighed down with pride, with vanity, with self-consciousness. That is part of his story, but it's more complicated than that, partly because we never abandoned pity. We still have it. So even in civilized societies like ours, like his, like France then, which he thought was civilized, not just for better or for worse, for worse. In civilized societies, we feel pity. We don't like to see other human beings suffer. We cry. He thinks pity under civilization is different from pity under conditions of, as he would call it, primitive human existence. There, he says, 
pity is obscure but strong. What he means is there isn't a lot of weeping and wailing. There isn't a lot of emoting, but there is real feeling. Naturally, people won't cry, but if they see someone else suffering, they will do something about it. He thinks under civilization, what you get is prominent displays of pity, but the actual feeling is weak. It becomes visible but weak. We cry when we see a child starving on the news. On the whole, we don't do much about it. In contrast, he thinks to the primitive condition of humankind, where we might not cry, but we would actually try and stop it. So the character of pity changes, but it's also not the case that he thinks there's no pride at the beginning. Amor propra, pride, is kind of dormant in humanity from the start. It's there. It's not something that someone brings in from the outside. It's not some sort of infection that arrives halfway through the story. It's latent and something brings it to life. What brings it to life for Rousseau? Well, it is a long story. It is a gradual story. It is not sudden. Even in the state of nature, he thinks we will occasionally compare ourselves to others. There are all sorts of puzzles that he finds hard to resolve. There's the puzzle of language, a deep puzzle in human evolution. How did language emerge? And he says what makes it so baffling for him is that it almost looks like the cooperation that you need to have language requires you to have language. How do you agree what words mean unless you can talk about what words mean? It is a deep puzzle and it takes a couple of centuries of study of human evolution to resolve it. And if it has been resolved, Rousseau can't answer that question. But he recognizes that, therefore, that even in the long story of how humanity got from what it was to what it is, there are these very slow incremental steps of cooperation and codependence. Language is a form of codependence. We will compare. We will occasionally wonder if we can trust other people. But then something not sudden, but more significant happens. The two stages in human evolution that start the big change are, in Rousseau's terms, agriculture and metallurgy. Or as he says, it's not about gold and silver, it's about wheat and iron. When human beings move from hunter-gatherer or forager societies to agricultural or settled societies, when they till the land, when they plant and grow, when they work out how to use the tools, iron, to plough the land, the same tools that also become the tools of warfare from swords into ploughshares and from ploughshares into swords. Settle the land, till the land, have the tools to do it. It starts to change. So one thing that changes is that's the beginning of a kind of division of labour. If some people are making the tools, then presumably some other people are going to have to feed them. And there's going to be codependency there. The tool makers need to be fed. The people who are creating or producing the food need the tool makers to supply the tools. But it's more fundamental than that for Rousseau. It's a kind of transformation of space and time. In the natural state of humanity, we live day to day. He says it over and over again. You get up in the morning, you go to bed at the night, and that's your life. And you don't have to think beyond it because you know you can walk away. But once you are settled in one place, and particularly once you are planting and then waiting for what you plant to turn into food. You have to plan and think ahead. And planning and thinking ahead requires human beings to worry about other human beings. Can they be relied on? Will they wait? Can you trust that other human beings won't become impatient? Space changes too, because now you are in one place. A life where human beings are always on the move, it's easy to walk away. It becomes harder to walk away 
when your community is settled? And can you be sure that there will be somewhere you can walk away to? What if the next piece of land has been settled as well? What if the space gets squeezed? It becomes harder, again, to use a very 21st century term, to go off the grid once there's wheat and iron. By no means impossible, by no means impossible, but harder. And then you are on the slippery slope to the next stage. And the next stage, Rousseau says at the beginning of the second part of the second discourse, is his moment where it really starts to go wrong. And that's the invention of private property. He says, the point where the first human being said of a particular piece of land, this is mine, and staked it out and marked it out and gave it a boundary, was the beginning of the end, or at least the end of the beginning. It was a very bad moment for Rousseau in the human story. And part of the reason it's so bad is it starts what he thinks, ultimately, is the worst effect of progress and civilization, so-called. It's what he characterizes as the dominance of how things appear over how they really are. And he connects it back to the invention of private property, because if you're going to stake a claim to the land, you're going to need a reason for it. You're going to need a justification for it. And by definition for Rousseau, the justification will be spurious. Naturally, it isn't yours rather than mine or mine rather than yours. So you're going to have to come up with an artificial argument, an argument which is essentially about entitlement. You have some right to it. You have some entitlement to it. And that argument will be fake. And so you are on the road to fake arguments being what matters. And actually, the more skillful you are at a fake argument, the better off you will be. Seeming will matter more than reality. Appearance will be the currency that we trade in. And once that happens, Rousseau thinks, we are really in trouble. So one way he characterizes what comes next is he says, you go not quickly, but much more quickly than the story has been moving so far, from the division between rich and poor, the people who have and the people who don't, to the division between strong and weak, the rich justify what they do by saying that they're stronger, they have a right to it, an entitlement to it, and from strong and weak to masters and slaves, masters and essentially people in a state of servitude. Property produces divisions which become entrenched and then get backed up by law and by states and by coercion and by force, and then you are trapped. Or another way to put it, this isn't Rousseau's way of putting it, but it's a simpler way of making the same argument. It's the move from gateposts to guards to laws. That is, the first person stakes out the ground by simply marking it, but then realises to protect it, it needs to be guarded, and then realises that to justify the guards and their use of force, you need laws and politics, and then the politics becomes the means of coercion. At that point, Rousseau thinks, we really are in trouble. Why is it allowed to happen? So one person says, this is mine. Why do the others let that person get away with it? Part of the answer is because of the way that Rousseau characterizes the state of nature. After all, you might think, well, if the few are staking out their ground, why don't the many stop them? Because for Rousseau, in a way like Hobbes, in the state of nature, the many are not coordinated. We are not a community or a group. It is a kind of solitary existence. We don't have the means to organize ourselves, to resist. And the temptation is there for many of the many to succumb to what the few have offered them, which is a set of rules, a set of protections, maybe even a set of rights, 
spurious, Rousseau thinks, but possibly persuasive, particularly if skillfully presented. And so he says, we rush into the trap because we feel we have no choice. And there is again, to use another anachronistic 21st century term, a sort of network effect at work here. The more people who sign up to appearance over reality, the harder it is to insist on reality. Indeed, if that's where the food is, if that's where the security is, you really have to be brave to walk away. But Russo thinks it's not just a trap for the poor. It's a trap for everyone. It's a trap for the rich too. Even the person who says this is mine is falling into a trap. And Russo makes the argument, as he brings the story up to his present day, of societies in which the rich have so much and the poor have so little, the rich have too much and the poor have nowhere near enough, that it's bad for the rich too. 18th century civilised society is a society in which even the people who are the haves, not the have-nots, suffer from terrible ill health. They have too much food. They are diseased. They are corrupted, he thought, by medicine. They are corrupted by luxury. They spend all of their time and their attention on looking good, and they forget about what really matters. It's that kind of argument. It is an argument against the hypocrisy of civilization. It's an argument against the corrupting effects of luxury. In that sense, it's a relatively familiar argument. Rousseau certainly wasn't the only person making it, though he made it as forcefully as anyone. But I think it's really important to say that Rousseau's argument goes beyond that. Part of what makes it both bracing and really shocking He doesn't just reject the hypocrisy of luxurious, civilized, selfish modern life. He rejects all of it. And he says, even the things that we think are natural in the unnatural world of 18th century civilized life are not natural. It's all a construct. It's all an invention. Even the family itself. One of his most radical arguments, and for many people, most shocking arguments, is to say that the thing that we think connects us all the way back to the start of the story, the one thing that was necessary even in the natural primitive state of humankind, the one inevitable codependency, fathers, mothers, and children, is not natural. Here he's not arguing against Hobbes so much, he explicitly makes this argument against another 17th century English philosopher, John Locke. The argument being that because of the way human beings are naturally constructed, certain features of our existence, pregnancy is long, childhood is vulnerable and weak, human beings take a long time relative to other animals to become self-sufficient. We need a lot of protecting. Mothers need looking after or at least protecting during pregnancy. Children need protecting during early childhood. Inevitably, there is a natural division of labor, men, women, and children, And there is a natural codependency. Fathers will look after mothers. Mothers will look after babies. That's the only way that the human species can preserve itself. And Rousseau says no. He rejects that. He doesn't think in the state of nature there is a reason for fathers to wait around for the babies to be born. Some babies will live. Some babies will die. He doesn't actually think even pity is enough to cement family ties. He thinks even from those relationships, naturally, human beings are both capable of and entitled to walk away. And he didn't just think it, he lived it. Rousseau had five children with a woman who's often described as a semi-literate laundry maid. He married her eventually, eventually, but he did not raise his children. 
They were given away. They were taken to the foundling home. It's not quite as bad as leaving them out on the hillside to die, but it's closer to that than the idea that we might have of leaving them in a nice, warm, safe place where someone else will look after them. Rousseau effectively abandoned his children. And maybe he thought, and he writes about this in the Confessions, and it's pretty repugnant, maybe he thought he was being true to himself. Who knows? But that's one of the reasons why I don't think it's plausible to say of Rousseau that he's the nice philosopher. He really wasn't nice. Hobbes was a much, much nicer person than Rousseau. Rousseau wasn't nice, but he also wasn't nostalgic. So he didn't think that it was possible to go back. He didn't think that human societies could be rescued from these slow, incremental, and then much quicker and ultimately fatal missteps through wheat and iron, through property, to law, to the state, to luxury, to privilege, to the farcical and absurd setup of 18th century, not just France, but Europe, although he does sort of exempt Geneva. That's another story. He doesn't think that there's a way of telling that story in reverse, the Benjamin Button version, where you go back to the beginning. It is now who we are. We were once something naturally, but we are not natural anymore. So we could do with more nature in our lives. Rousseau is certainly the philosopher of that. As individuals, he would definitely encourage us all to get out into the countryside, even if we can't quite fold ourselves away into the woods and forage and just live like that. He definitely thinks we could do with more of what we once were in our lives. We have way too much civilization and not enough nature. But he didn't think that as societies, we could renaturalize ourselves. Societies are not natural, and we have become, to some extent, to a deep extent, social animals. So if there's no going back, what can we do? So this is where the political philosophy comes in. Indeed, this is where his later work, The Social Contract, comes in. So another thing that he shares with Hobbes, and he shares at least as much with Hobbes as he rejects, is the idea that politics is artificial. So politics is not natural. It can't be natural because we aren't naturally political. We have to invent it. We create it. We could do it more consciously than we have done. There is an alternative to that stumbling path where we keep making non-choices and then we finally end up in a place which is a nightmare. We could try and at least rescue ourselves by making the artificiality of politics more a conscious or deliberate act. But that's Hobbes too. Hobbes thinks that we need to think about the artificiality of politics and we need to think about how we make it work. The difference here between Rousseau and Hobbes is that Rousseau explicitly rejects the main Hobbesian mechanism of artificiality, which is political representation. So the idea that the only way we can really do this, Hobbes says, is to franchise out or to give away decision-making to someone or something else. Let someone or something else decide for us for the sake of peace. Rousseau rejects that because that for him is the problem, not the solution. That is part of what's wrong with modern or civilized life. It is seeming or appearance over reality because we end up living under laws that we haven't created for ourselves, that we haven't been involved in. They aren't our laws. They're someone else's laws, someone else's justifications, someone else's entitlements, and we just live under them. And that will reinforce rather than remedy the problem, which is, again, to use a slightly later term, alienation. We are alienated from our true selves under the conditions of modern society. And so to base political rule on representation 
is to entrench alienation because we have given it away. Rousseau wants us to reclaim it, not reclaim nature in politics, but reclaim the artificiality for ourselves. And in the social contract, he comes up with a complicated in some ways and in other ways, simple argument based around what he calls the general will, which is the possibility that we can reclaim it for ourselves by doing it collectively, that we can amalgamate our wills into something which means that we as a people in a political society can say that we rule ourselves. But the social contract does not make it sound easy because Rousseau was clear it is really, really hard, given what we have become, given who we are, to do that is incredibly difficult. It takes quite a lot of contingencies, and it won't be for everyone. It can probably only happen on a relatively small scale, the city-state, Geneva. It requires a certain way of life. It is what he calls a kind of austere democracy. There is not a nostalgia, but at least a looking back to a more Spartan way of life. Less luxury, less commerce, less trade. More, not natural life, but pared-down life. Fewer distractions fewer comparisons, less vainglory, less pride. That's really demanding. It was demanding in the 18th century. God knows it's demanding now. The social contract version of politics is not for everyone. Rousseau is not suggesting some kind of solution. He's almost suggesting a kind of test against which we can compare just how far we are away from a politics that might make sense for us, not in natural terms, but in terms that allow the artificiality to be real. Where does it lead that argument? So the social contract argument for some people leads to the French Revolution. An author I talked about in the last series, Benjamin Constant, looking back in 1819, partly blamed Rousseau for the catastrophe as he saw it of the French Revolution because he thought that the social contract argument was just too demanding. Demanding that kind of austere collective self-rule was impossible in France, a society of 20 plus million people, by that point committed, not simply to luxury, but to trade and commerce and progress and the arts and the sciences and forms of personal freedom, a society made up of modern people. You can't do it, Constant thought. And if you try and do it, if you fall for Rousseau's trick or Rousseau's trap, believing that it's possible in a society like France, you will end up in disaster. I'm not sure Rousseau thought it was possible in a society like France. I think he held it up deliberately as an absurdly demanding standard for politics to let us know who we are. Maybe we're not those people. But that's one way it goes. And for Rousseau's supporters, it isn't the path that leads from the social contract to the French Revolution to tyranny. The people who still believe in it, it's the path that leads from the social contract to the French Revolution to freedom. And there's a line from there to future revolutions, including the Russian Revolution. But that's not, I think, the story that comes out of the second discourse. And it's quite a twisting of the social contract. The second discourse leads in other directions. It leads towards 19th century theories of evolution because it's an evolutionary account of who we are. We somehow have become something without either choosing it or knowing it. There are forces at work that have shaped us, which are in us and make us who we are, but which we are not consciously in control of. So Rousseau's version of evolution was not Darwin's because he had no idea what was coming. But it foreshadows some of the arguments about what it is to understand the past in evolutionary terms, to think about the ways in which we are free 
and the ways in which we are trapped. I think the argument of the second discourse also leads towards the 20th century revolution in therapy, psychotherapy, psychology, because it is in part an argument about self-knowledge. What would it mean truly to understand our origins, truly to know who we are? What would it mean to think about the ways in which we are shaped not just by the big choices, not even always by the little choices, but by the decisions we're not even aware of, some of which we don't even know that we've made? And what would it then mean to analyse ourselves and try and understand what choices we still have left? There's that Rousseau too. Finally, if I had to say what the difference was between Rousseau and Hobbes, and there are many, though I think we should also recognise there are many overlaps, Hobbes wants us to be reconciled to the doubleness of modern life. That, in a sense, for Hobbes, is the background condition of being alive then and now, post-17th century, certainly that we are going to be alienated, that we are going to be alienated in politics, that we are going to have to let others decide that's the price we pay, ultimately, not just for peace, Hobbes thinks, but for a kind of freedom, even potentially a kind of liberal freedom. We accept that part of us will not make sense to the other part of us, but even on that basis, he thinks we can flourish. And Rousseau says, no, we can't flourish under those conditions. He doesn't necessarily think we can make sense to ourselves as whole creatures and telling the story that takes us back to the natural origins of human inequality doesn't make us whole. If anything, it might make us profoundly depressed. But he thinks we shouldn't give up trying, even under the artificial conditions of modernity, to be more whole. That is at least to own the artificiality, not to accept that it's going to be something that comes to us from the outside that it is going to, at some level, be alienating. We should continue to fight to make it less alienating than it would otherwise be, particularly given what we have become. We have become self-conscious creatures. We have become human beings who spend a ridiculous amount of our time not pitting each other, but comparing ourselves to each other, wondering, are we better or worse than that person? wondering whether we can survive or not without that person, entering willingly and sometimes unwillingly into relationships of codependency. Given that that's who we are, that we are no longer natural human beings, there is something unnatural about us, there is definitely something artificial about us. Given that's who we are, we shouldn't give up on trying to own it, to make the artificiality ours. Given we are so obsessed with appearance, we shouldn't give up on the project of trying to make the appearance more real. And who's to say that he's wrong about that? If you'd like to sign up to receive good quality editions of all the books David's going to be discussing, along with biographies, an anthology of LRB writing, reading guides and access to exclusive webinars, please go to the London Review of Books website. Just visit lrb.me forward slash ideas plus spelt p-l-u-s next week david talks about jeremy bentham and the pleasure principle if we focus on our happiness do we really end up happier to hear that please make sure you've subscribed to history of ideas as that's where all 11 remaining episodes in this series will be available
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.